I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder, the program that's all about hope, inspiration, and possibility, and we've got plenty of all of that for you today. Well, we sure do, especially in the person of Talia Castellano, the 13-year-old YouTube sensation. She's become an international celebrity while she's been battling two types of cancer. Also a well-known journalist and music critic who says 1970 was the pivotal year in our culture, and he says he can prove that by the albums that were released that year. We're going to also talk to a high-tech exec who totally reinvented himself after his wife's tragic death and proved that it's never too late to make a difference. Do you think it's too late to take up a musical instrument? Have you ever said, I just don't have the musical talent? Well, don't give up yet. A professor of psychology at NYU and director of the NYU Center for Language and Music who has written three books on the development of the brain says, yeah, old dogs can (laughs) learn new tricks even when it comes to playing a musical instrument. He took up guitar at the relatively ancient age of 38. Get this, by starting with the video game Guitar Hero, he shares his experiences and his insights the science of learning in a fascinating new book called Guitar Zero, The New Musician and the Science of Learning. Let's welcome Dr. Gary Marcus. Hey, Doc, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me. You know, this is way out there, even by our standards. A respected professor of psychology rewriting the book on the science of learning thanks to Guitar Hero. Uh, Tell us about that. Why? How did that come about? Well, I had wanted to play music since I was a little kid, but I really had no talent for it whatsoever. Like, I tried playing recorder in fourth grade, <laughs> excuse me, and the teacher uh, basically said that my talents lay elsewhere. I couldn't play Mary Had a Little Lamb. And I tried a few times over the years, never did very well. And then the video game came out, Guitar Hero, and I tried that, and that too was a disaster. I kept failing the first level. But then my wife taught me how to get through the first level, and then I had the first experience of actually being able to do something musical, and it was really exciting. And I just kind of played a bunch for a few weeks, and I was like, you know, maybe I could actually try a real guitar. And I got hooked. And so you can kind of think of the video game as a gateway drug to the real thing. Yeah, because Guitar Hero is really not much closer to playing the guitar than like a driving game would be to racing in the Daytona 500. No, I think it's inspiration. It does. Well, the one way in which it actually might help is it might have helped a little bit with my uh, innate sense of rhythm, excuse me, which is very poor. And so it gave me a little bit of feedback. And the good thing about computer training is computers are much more patient. So you compare to my uh, grade school recorder teacher who couldn't stand to hear someone as untalented as me play Mary Had a Little Lamb. Well, the video game can just keep giving you feedback. And, And so... In some ways, it can be more helpful for certain things than, than human instructors. But what it really did was to give me motivation to try the real guitar. So I didn't learn you know, how to play chords, obviously, playing the video game, but I learned that I could maybe possibly do it. So it was an important kind of inspiration. And what we like about this book, Dr. Marcus, is really what Bill said in the intro, that it's not so much about learning to play the guitar as it is uh, that you wanted to prove that there isn't a cutoff age for mastering a new skill, which is something we encourage people to do each and every week on this program, tell them that it is never too late to chase their dreams. Uh, Is that what you've come to believe? That's exactly what the book is about. So one of the inspirations as I started the book was um, my day job is as a developmental psychologist, and I started to realize that the idea of the critical period that you have to learn something by a certain age just wasn't coming through in the scientific data. So it was a very popular idea, but we were finding adults who were learning new languages and doing okay, and some of the classic studies from animals that people thought showed animals couldn't learn new things. It turned out if you taught them in slightly different ways, you could. So this whole idea is kind of a myth and was starting to fall apart. And so aside from the video game, it was inspiration. The, the literature was an inspiration, scientific literature, because it said, you know, maybe adults can learn new things. Of course, you picked one of the toughest skills there is to master. You know, how, how much of, of being a musician are you born with and how much can you learn? Well, I think the greatest musicians probably have the right set of genes, but I think anybody can become somewhat musical. 
um, even if they're not born with that skill. I mean, that's my, what my own experience shows is that you, know, you can be 40, and if you're dedicated, then you can be a good musician. I think to be a great musician, you probably need to have sort of all the stars in line. You need the right genes, and you need to practice a lot. But practice can take you a long way even without those genes. You know, in, in addition to, to the big the big picture, proving that it's never too late to learn new skills. I mean, at its core, you are really taking on something more profound than that, and and that is what counts as a life well-lived. Do we need mastery? Do we need expertise to fully benefit and enjoy our passions, or is simply the pursuit of our passions enough? I don't think you need to master your passions to get a lot out of it. What I talk about at the end of the book is the idea of pure hedonic pleasure. We just, you know, you like food and sex and everybody does and that's great, but we get another kind of joy from mastering things. And it's not even necessarily about being the very best, but just feeling like you've done your best. Um, that really gives a balance to life that um, you can't get from just sort of short-term pleasures. And so one of the reasons that I keep doing this is because of the balance that it gives me. I think uh, it, it makes me happier, even if I'm not going to be Jimi Hendrix or, El, or Eric Clapton. That, that's a good point for all, all of the other non-musicians in the audience. I mean, you started, as you said, no rhythm, no skills. How far have you gotten? Where are you now in, in your skill level? Well, I think I'm pretty good at improvising, so uh, I'm not I'm not at that level. But what I really wanted to be able to do was to pick up a guitar and just make something up, and I'm able to do that now. It's incredibly satisfying, and I'm able to do it uh, on stage. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a great musician, but I got to play with a lot of great musicians uh, as part of the kind of book tour, and that was incredibly fun for me. We are speaking with Dr. Gary Marcus, folks, who's a professor of psychology at NYU, among other things. And he's written a new book that's called Guitar Zero, The New Musician and the Science of Learning. Um, that seems to really, really be a, a, a subject matter that's taking off. You know, we, we talk about brain plasticity. We talk about, you know, uh, preventing dementia and doing all of that. Music has always held, you know, some some sort of mystery in terms of how it can transform people as as they age. Have you gained a new respect for, for music and what it can do for us as we age after writing this book? I mean, we don't have the absolute perfect scientific proof that it's going to make you, you know, have a longer life or anything like that, but it's certainly going to make you happier. And there's a good chance the data aren't quite in yet that it might, um, you know, keep your brain sharp in a lot of different ways. So, so what do you say to people? Because we found that just about everybody has a, a dream that's left over from childhood, something that they've always wanted to do, uh, but, but either time or circumstance wouldn't allow. What's the takeaway from here? What do you say to those people who are simply afraid or to try or they feel that the opportunity to try has already passed them by? I think the main thing I would say is give yourself space to pursue that dream and take it slowly. So it's not reasonable to expect if you're 70 that you're going to learn as fast maybe as when you were 10, but it can be done. And if you do things incrementally, this is the lesson of, of the experimental animal behavior literature. If you take it incrementally, you can do an awful lot. You can, so, you know, do pursue those dreams. Don't give up and just um, give yourself reasonable expectations and enjoy the ride. Well, you know, we always like it when, when someone like you from the academic world who can, who can write stuff that we're not capable of understanding kind of, uh, you know, steps down and writes something for everybody that, that really can impact our life. Where do you go from here? I, I imagine you've got another project in mind. What's the next thing you're going to write? Um, the next one is actually going to be about robots and artificial intelligence and sort of looking to the future. And can you give us a little preview or hint about that? I mean, a uh, fascinating subject. What, 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 what will we see in another 100 years? Uh, I can't even imagine what we'll see in 100 years. It's going to be more about what we might see in the next decade or two decades. And in particular, it's going to be about what robots can still learn from human beings. So there are lots of things um, that machines are better than us, like chess, for example. But there are lots of things like understanding language that humans are still better. And so it's going to be about the last few things that we have to teach the robots. Uh, and have you watched the Terminator series? Is is that something <laughs> something we should be you know concerned what? about? I did just watch uh, Terminator. I never had seen the original Terminator. I saw T2 when it came out, and I just a couple of days ago watched Terminator. It's a great movie. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it is an interesting and, and kind of frightening scenario, to say the very least. Well, that's one of, one of the chapters in the book will be basically how do we teach values to the robots. Wow. Yeah, that's great. In, in the final couple minutes that we have, um, you're playing the guitar now. Do, does musical ability on, on one instrument now more readily and quickly transfer to musical ability on other things? Do you find yourself uh, wanting to pick up the recorder again or maybe play a flute? I think never the recorder, but it does make me play keyboard. I think, you know, too much childhood trauma there. But um, it does make me play the keyboard some, and for my own purposes, I I, uh, compose music. And I can't play the piano well, but from what I've learned from guitar, it transfers. I understand a lot of the music theory, and so I'm able to put together compositions that I think sound reasonably good. I actually did the the music for the audiobook version of Guitar Zero, and that was fun. And something else about technology, Gary, is that uh, these days people have the freedom of putting headphones on and not having to worry about embarrassing themselves as they're learning a new skill. So it's easier to do it risk-free. Uh, absolutely. You can get yourself a travel guitar, hook up some headphones, you can practice wherever you go. Your, your next book is going to have to be on the guitar faces that you have to make to really be an effective <laughs> lead guitar player. I, I will leave that one to us. <laughs> All right, folks. He is Dr. Gary Marcus. His new book is called Guitar Zero, The New Musician and the Science of Learning. You can learn more by going to GaryMarcus, M-A-R-C-U-S dot com. And it is really an optimistic look at what is all possible for each and every one of us uh, as we continue to age. Thanks so much, uh, Gary Marcus. And, Bill, isn't that interesting? I've always been one that thought I had no musical ability, but uh, this has encouraged me to maybe reconsider that. You know, there are a couple different purposes of music. One is to entertain other people, and another is to fulfill yourself, you know, to feel the rhythm, to, to master a new skill. Like you put your questions were great to Gary because it really shows that there's a connection between the music and the person making the music. So it's not just for the enjoyment of others. You can benefit greatly by playing music for just yourself. It's like people that sing in the shower. Mm-hmm. Sing to the top of your voice, folks. Live your life as full as you can, and don't let anybody tell you that you can't. Coming up, half of her life has been spent battling for her life. The 13-year-old YouTube sensation who is fighting for kids everywhere. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with an accredited chest pain center and heart failure program, as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com You are listening to Growing Boulder, and you know, sometimes we can learn how to grow bolder from kids, especially kids like Talia Joy Castellano. She battled cancer for most of her young life before finally passing away from the disease at the age of just 13. But before her death, Talia became an internet sensation thanks to her YouTube channel. Yeah, the little girl with the big personality ended up becoming the face of pediatric cancer worldwide. Talia Castellano's photo album contains the kind of memories children shouldn't have. This was when I first got diagnosed before I lost my hair when I was seven. Seven. And this was me after my big surgery, um, going in the ambulance to go across the street to the... What was your big surgery for? To take out my first tumor. In 2007, Talia was diagnosed with stage 4 neuroblastoma, a rare childhood cancer, and began a battle for life that has now consumed half of her life. It's a shame, you know, that her childhood has been robbed by this cancer. And it is difficult as a mom to watch what she goes through on a daily basis and and not let her see all the things that I'm feeling. But, I mean, there are hard, hard times. Years of radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, stem cell transplants, and more have beat the cancer into remission three times, only to have it relapse every time. Not long ago, Talia learned that the cancer has spread to her bone marrow, and she now has a second cancer, pre-leukemia. It's just the thought of it to just be able to say, all right, well, we got to kick it again. I mean... 
you don't want to give up, but it's hard to say whether or not you want to continue with it on the third time of it happening for almost five and a half years. One thing that keeps Talia smiling is her dream of becoming a celebrity makeup artist, a dream that was born when she began losing her hair from chemotherapy. At first, when you lost your hair, you did wear a wig. Yes, I did. What bothered you about that? When I would put a wig on, I felt not fake, but just not me. And I felt like I was hiding myself, and I didn't feel right, and it itched. It itched. So I took it off. <laughs> but at first I had very, very low self-esteem. I didn't, I didn't like the way I looked at all. But then Talia discovered what she calls the magic of makeup. And I realized the makeup was making me feel so much more better about myself. And then eventually I was, it kind of clicked that I was using makeup as my wig. Makeup is my wig became Talia's slogan, and after devouring books, videos, and advice from experts, she quickly became an expert herself. They said I have a very steady hand and a very natural way of applying makeup, so I guess it's all on the wrist. I don't know. Talia did what many aspiring stars do. She started her own YouTube channel where she reviews makeup products and produces application tutorials. I have one blush and one highlighter. Holy crap, like you guys are gonna be like, you're 12, Talia, you don't need to wear that. But it actually looks really like pretty and natural. It's cool. Since Talia reports even when she's in the hospital, her subscribers began to ask more and more about her cancer. Why are you bald? What kind of cancer do you have? How long have you had it? What do you do? You didn't start it out as, as a cancer blog, did you? Mm -mm. No, I didn't. It was a makeup channel at first, but then realizing that I could use my cancer for something, and it just kind of started to incorporate that, and then I made cancer videos, and I realized I could help other people like me that maybe were first diagnosed or to inform other people about cancer or whatever, and eventually it became that. The more Talia talked about her cancer, the more subscribers she attracted. Within months, she became a viral video and online sensation with over 180,000 subscribers, 13 million views, and countless fans worldwide. My stepdad told me that I had like six million texts. I was like, what? It's not possible. Okay, maybe it is. Just days after her latest diagnosis, Talia spoke candidly and fearlessly to her friends and fans. And there's nothing really out there that treats both types of cancers. They're both very, very serious and very, very aggressive cancers and they spread very quickly and they're both very, very deadly. Um, I will put it that way and I'm being straight up about that. Basically, there's not really a lot of options for treatment anymore. It's very therapeutic for her to get in front of the camera to talk and, and to talk about her cancer. Initially, Talia didn't want to undergo the painful and risky bone marrow transplant, but now... When I talk about it with my friends, I just think about if I didn't do it and the time comes and let's say I only had a couple of days and we knew that, then I feel like I would regret not doing it. But I feel like there has to be something else besides that. She always knows what she wants. And sometimes I used to question those, um, those decisions or, or where her mind was going to as far as what she wanted. But now I realize she has these visions in her mind and she knows exactly what she wants. So I trust her to, to understand and process these things and really just follow her. Meanwhile, life goes on and Talia has her sights set on acquiring her first real celebrity client, Ellen DeGeneres. Are you confident that you will at one day be applying makeup to Ellen DeGeneres' face? I definitely am confident about that. It's going to happen? Of course. I mean, it should. There's so many people rooting for her to get on the Ellen show, to do her makeup, um, to meet her. Um, we really hope that dream comes true for her. Makeup has given Talia a dream, cancer has given her a purpose, and YouTube has given her a platform to help raise awareness and funding for childhood cancer. This is not fair to me anymore. 
I'm only 13. I shouldn't really have to be doing this. No one should have to do this, not even adults. And it's really not fair for kids to have cancer, and it really freaking sucks. It sucks freaking so badly. I mean, we have the brains to figure it out, to find the cure. We just don't have the funding. At some point, do you start thinking that, you know, that, that maybe there is a big purpose, there's a design for, for some of this? Definitely. You know, I know she said that she wants her footprints and her fingerprints left behind in this world, and she's going to do it. While Talia will never give up hope and never stop fighting, she fully understands the reality of her situation. They said four months to a year. And if you're younger than 12, I don't know if you would comprehend what I'm saying. Doctors say you'll never walk again. Doctors say you'll never have children. Um, it happens all the time. You, you don't know what your body's made up of. You don't know how your body is going to repair itself. You don't know. Just don't freak out. <laughs> it's what I tell a lot of my friends. It's, it's not like I'm, it's gonna be tomorrow. I think the moral of the story is, of course, life. Enjoy life every moment that you have. Be kind to people. Um, you know, love each other. Love in the hood, boo. Okay, so I'll see you guys later. Bye. Mwah. What an amazing spirit. And you know, Bill, two days after we posted that story, Talia was contacted by the producers for The Ellen Show. She was flown to L.A. and appeared on the show. And Ellen made her an honorary cover girl, gave her a lifetime supply of cover girl makeup, a check for $20,000, and asked her to interview celebrities like Taylor Swift, Usher, and more at iHeartRadio in Las Vegas. Since Talia's death, her family has stayed actively involved in the fight to try to raise more funds for pediatric cancer research through its group called Talia's Legacy Children's Cancer Fund. And you can learn more about their efforts by visiting taliaslegacy.org. enough to eat right when you feel good. But what about if you don't? What if you're ill? What if you're on medications or undergoing treatment? How do you stay strong enough to fight then? So here with some tips you can use and share is Dr. Susan Mitchell. Thanks, Bill. Hi, foodie friends. Meat that tastes metallic, a dry mouth, nausea, vomiting. These are just a few of the possible side effects from cancer treatment. And chances are you know someone who's undergoing treatment for cancer right now. Keeping up their strength through proper nutrition, it can be the difference between life and death. Something I'm sad to say I know from personal experience. You know, recently shared that I lost my dad to lung cancer that metastasized to his bones. And then a few months later, watched my brother die of rapidly spreading melanoma at age 40. And chemotherapy affects the body very negatively. It affects the way it handles food, particularly digestion and absorption. Chemotherapy kills cancer cells, but at the same time, it can also destroy cells in the mouth, cells tied to hair growth, yes, and those in the digestive tract. Each person is different in how the chemo affects his or her body. The type of chemo drug or agent used, the dose, the length of treatment, all are going to be linked to the severity of the side effects and ultimately to your desire to eat and the nutritional status of the body. Okay, so let's let's break this yeah. down. What are some of the tips that can really make a difference? First, eat in the morning. This probably is the time you're going to be hungriest, so eat when you feel like it. And as I tell people, whenever you feel like it, remember that food and calories are not absorbed the same right now, and they're used by the body a little bit differently, not quite as effectively. Then switch from large meals to frequent small meals and snack. Pump up your protein intake. Remember this, the food sources of protein include milk, soy milk, eggs, fish, meat, poultry, and nuts. Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up, how landmark albums all released in the year 1970 signaled a major change in America. That's next on Growing Boulder. 
Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Hey everyone, I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton and this is Growing Boulder. Our next guest is a well-known journalist and music critic, a Rolling Stone magazine editor and frequent contributor to the New York Times. Yeah, his latest project is a book called Fire and Rain, The Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, James Taylor, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and The Lost Story of 1970. Let's find out more as we say hello to David Brown. Hi, David. Hey, guys. How are you? Uh, we're great. Fascinating book that you've created. And the jumping-off point for your book is that four of our most iconic artists not only released, but what many believe to be their greatest albums ever in 1970. And, and three of those four groups broke up in, in, in 1970. Uh, how did that uh, work its way into a book? Well, I, I've, I've always been fascinated by that, that change from the 60s to the 70s. You know, I'm, a, I'm sort of a child of the 70s, and I... I grew up, as many people perhaps my age did, always hearing the same refrain over and over again, which was, you just missed the greatest period ever in mankind called the 60s. Yeah. You know, music, politics, Kennedys, you missed it all. <laughs> you're, you're now stuck in the 70s. And I, I always kind of, uh, that was always sort of in the back of my mind a bit, uh, I, in terms of, I thought, well, God, what happened there exactly? Uh, when did that change occur? So it's something that's always... It's it's been there in my brain, and and a couple of years ago, I just um, I kind of circled back to that idea for a new book idea, and it just sort of in in ruminating about that, I realized that yes, in 1970, you had these four major records come out: uh, Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Sweet Baby James, James Taylor, Let It Be by the Beatles, and Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel, all among the first records I ever owned. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting when you think about that story? Because as you said, three of those groups, the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, and CSNY, three of the most iconic groups of the 60s, put out these major records that year and then broke up. And then you have James Taylor, who was kind of a nobody at the beginning of the year. He was very much a cult figure. By the end of the year, Sweet Baby James is a huge album. Fire and Rain is a big song, and he is the star. And so I thought, wow, that's an, that in a way tells the story that I've always wanted to tell. Uh, you see the, the, the collapse of so many, you know, these iconic figures from the 60s, the rise of somebody who came to embody the 70s and the kind of apolitical singer-songwriter, you know, mellow, laid-back vibe. And I thought music would be a great way to tell that story. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Is it James Taylor? Would you almost call him like a Joni Mitchell without teeth? You know, the, it, it's almost like, you know, he carried folk music on into the 70s. But, you know, what had been a, a Dylan-esque type of, you know, real protest thing turned into a, well, you know, I, I fell in love with you and here's what happened in my life, kind of a trans- mellowing. Right. And, and that when that exactly. And that was the really a pivotal moment in the culture, I think, in that we had singer-songwriters before James Taylor, obviously, as you said, Dylan and many others. But... You know, politics and social consciousness always played a big role. James was really one of the first major figures who was pretty explicit in saying, you know, I don't know much about politics. I mean, don't don't look to me to tell you who to vote for. I just want to sing songs about what's going on in my head, the troubles I've had with, with drugs and love and, and the, the, the turmoil I've gone through over the last couple of years. And I, I just want to focus on me, <laughs> you know. And I, it kind of uh, the whole me decade thing, in a way, kind of started with James Taylor. And a lot of people at that point, I think by the end of 1970, really related to that. They were just worn out by... Uh, you know, three very traumatic years of, you know, whether you can go back to the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and the Democratic Convention and the Manson murders and Kent State, and just it was like one thing after another. By the end of 1970, I think people were just exhausted, and they were in the mood for maybe something a little more reflective and more introspective and more personal that reflected what they'd gone through. And, 
it was just all accidental, but it was just like the right place, right time for James Taylor. And yet in 1970, that, of course, was when we all opened Life magazine and saw the, the, the kids who were shot by the National Guard at, at Kent State. And you write in your book about uh, Neil Young, who wrote down, who sat down in, in, in what, in a matter of moments, uh, wrote Ohio? Yeah, it was kind of an amazing little moment. Um, it was actually an interesting moment for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, too, because they had just started a tour and they did one show in Colorado, and they broke up. They fell apart practically on stage. They all retreated. They all went back to California to their separate things and tried to figure out what to do. And Neil was visiting a friend's house in Northern California, and a friend came back with some groceries and the new issue of Life magazine and plopped it down on this little bench, and they're outside in the redwoods, and it's sunny, it's a beautiful day, and, and there it is, this the photo. And, and, you know, we forget in this multimedia age of cable TV and everything that you know, Life magazine was one of the ways people got their news, you know, other than the, the evening news. So even though this issue arrived, you know, almost a week after the incident, those pictures hadn't gotten around that much. And so Neil saw this uh, cover photo and the, you know, the, the girl kneeling over the, the one student who was killed and all those other photos, and it, was, it really hit him. And he had his guitar there. Actually, it was David Crosby's with him, so I think it was Crosby's guitar. <laughs> he borrowed Crosby's guitar, and he just sat down, and David Crosby told me this. And he just watched as Neil basically wrote this song in like 10 minutes. Neil basically said, we should record this like right now and put it out as a single. The group reassembled in the studio in L.A. a couple of days later, banged out that record. It was in the stores less than a week after that. It's kind of an amazing, uh, amazing sort of modern-day protest song just coming together like that. No question, 1970. What an interesting year, Mark, right in between, you know, the tumult of the 60s and the uh, me generation, as David said, of the 70s. Yeah, we've all heard that 1969 was the year that changed everything. But as he mentioned, four iconic groups, four iconic albums. And he also talks in the book about Led Zeppelin, Miles Davis, Curtis Mayfield, David Bowie, Graham Parsons. Folks, it's a great book. It's called Fire and Rain. And according to David Brown, 1970 is the year that changed everything. I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days Thought they never end I've seen lonely times And could not find a friend But I always thought I'd see Coming up next, foregoing chemotherapy for literary therapy, the true confessions of a dying lady. That's next on Growing Boulder. You gotta help me to make a stand. Just gotta see me through another day. Support for Growing Boulder provided by. The Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned, minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. You know, one day we're going to have to ask Roger what the lyrics to that song. What what did he say there? And I've heard it a million times, too. Hey, everybody, Bill and Mark along with you, and this is Growing Boulder. Our next guest has had a decades-long battle with the number one killer in this country, cancer. She had cervical cancer in 1983, lung cancer, even had part of her lung removed in 2001, and this year... She was diagnosed again, this time stage 4 mantle cell lymphoma, and this time given six months to a year to live. Yeah, and she refused chemotherapy, Bill, pretty much opted for for what has turned out to be literary therapy. She wrote her first book titled True Confessions of a Dying Lady or How to Lie and Bribe Your Way into Heaven. Let's find out more as we welcome Gretchen Gannis. Good morning, Gretchen. How are you? Good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, that that's a pretty provocative title right there. True Confessions of a Dying Lady, How to Lie and Bribe. I, I've seen your book. It, it's a very interesting read. Obviously, uh, you've got a sense of humor as, as, as you face this battle. Well, I think that, you know, the minute we take our first breath, we're 
beginning uh, to die. And I think we don't look at our uh, mortality or immortality um, as we go through life. And uh, when I was faced with, at the in January, they told me I had till June to live. Um, I had to t- try and kind of uh, look at, at death. And <clears throat> uh, so I tried to do it in a way of looking at sort of love, life, living and dying, all as one big, huge ball. It's the only way I can explain it. So, Gretchen, you're right. I mean, that's the one topic we will avoid at all costs. What has it done to you to have to stare it in the face? How has this changed you? Um, It made me hurry up and write a bunch of books. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, though, that that's what you chose to do, you know, not get on a plane and go to Italy or, you know, overseas, but you chose to sit down and write. I wanted to reach out to other people and and let them know that you know we can uh you know have this life and go on to this next world i I think I look at it as a um as i said as a ball as this great big huge oneness that you call whatever you wish to call it the is the i am heaven whatever you choose, and that that's where I'm going. And I can I can go out fighting and clawing, or I can just kind of open my arms and, and embrace where I'm going to go and and begin to look for the next adventure. And I don't think anyone's ever written about that. And there's days when I'm sad, days where I'm frightened, um, but I chose to put my energies into doing um, the books for myself and for other people. Uh, instead of uh, kind of laying around and just moping. It seems like there might be a fine line, Gretchen, between, you know, opening your arms and accepting what, uh, you know, we will all face one day uh, or another, or, uh, you know, know, giving up, Uh, you know, because we've seen many times that doctors get it wrong. Yet in the book, you talk openly about death rapidly approaching. Have you given up or is that a bad way of looking at this? Oh, no, you don't give up until the last moment. You know, I, I don't think you uh, uh, we ever get, uh, give up. As I said, I think I'm just traveling through. I'm going someplace else. I don't see it as uh, a giving up or even as an ending. In, uh, in fact, I left two journals, one for each son. And at the end, I wrote the end. And then I went back and I scratched it out and I wrote the beginning. We're talking with Gretchen Ganis, who just recently found out she has stage 4 mantle cell lymphoma. What What is that, Gretchen? It is a very strange, it's a uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's a very odd lymphoma, um, not well known in the United States, more known in the uh, United Kingdom. And very few pe- uh, women have it. It's, it's just a very odd thing that I... I ended up with. I think it came from working in a chemical company years ago, but we're really not sure how how I uh, came about it. Hmm. Well, you, you mentioned you've been writing as rapidly as you can, and, and your first, first book, which is now out, True Confessions of a Dying Lady. Uh, we understand you've written a second book uh, that's called Things the Universe Whispered in My Ear. Yes. Uh, well, I'm working on that one. I have a new one that's uh, in another True Confessions book, Uh but I am working on uh, things the universe whispered in my ear. Well, tell us what you can so far. What has the the universe whispered to you? Yeah. Uh, many things. Uh, the amazing thing has been is I have um, a part of my disease is something called asphasia. And it's where sometimes you can see something uh, in front of you, like, say, a tree. Uh, and you can visualize it, and you know in your head that it's a tree, but if you want to try to project that word out into the world, it just doesn't come out. So use a lot of gestulations and things like that. But um, let me think. Let me pick one from my... I'm just going to open my little book at random. Oh, it says, the universe whispered this. Let's quit having tug-of-wars and start having hug-of-wars. <laughs> And that's what I ask each night. I say, please, when I go to sleep, give me one thought that I can remember in the morning because uh, my memory is so bad. 
Hey, Gretchen, in the last minute or so, help us help us wrap this up. I mean, I, I've heard it, it described as almost a gift. I mean, can you imagine if you if you go in a car accident and you don't know it's coming, but you've you've been told you've had time to prepare and to really think and sum up your life. What could you share with us? What thoughts and ideas about facing our own mortality? Um, a friend asked me that, and that that's a very deep question, and I had to actually come home and think about it. And I did a lot of thought and meditation, and I came up with an answer. There's only two things in life to me. One is love, and one is forgiveness. And if you try number one and it doesn't work, then try number two. And if you try number two and it doesn't work, then you go back and try number one, and you keep going back and forth and back and forth until, until you get it right. Well, folks, if you want to, if you want to laugh, if you want to cry, uh, yeah, if you want to learn more about your life by understanding hers, check out her book. Her name is Gretchen Gannis. The book is True Confessions of a Dying Lady, or How to Lie and Bribe Your Way into Heaven, and and certainly it's a journey we all must take at some time. And uh, and thank you, Gretchen, for facing it the way you are and helping us uh, understand that uh, there are many different ways to look at the end, which, as you say, is actually the beginning. Coming up, a wake-up call that changed his life and could change yours as well. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. That is Bill Schaefer. And you know, we talk a lot on this program about the wake-up call, the moment when we realize for one reason or another that there is more to life than our current situation, that we really can have more, that we really can give back more, that it's not too late. Yeah, for for Mark Noonan, that wake-up call came in 2004. He was just 52 years old, a driven executive in the high-tech industry. He was a guy that worked really all over the world. And he happened to be in China when he got a call that his wife had fallen off a ladder and he tried to, as quickly as he can, rush to get to her bedside, but he was too late. She passed away before that could happen. And that was his wake-up call. And let's find out how it's changed his life as we welcome Mark Noonan to the program. Hey, Mark, how are you? Hi, Bill. How about yourself? Well, I'm guessing that that's something that you never, ever get over and let's start from today and work back to that incident because you're now you're a volunteer engagement and social media manager for a group called Elders in Action, which is a, a nonprofit in Portland overseeing 170 volunteers all ages. Uh, how did that personal tragedy in, in 2004 lead to this? Yeah, um, you know, looking back from this point, um, you know, you so many people out there are having. Uh, Major changes happen in their life, and uh, incredibly unfortunate. Mine happened in such a tragedy, and you're absolutely right. It's not something you ever get over, um, you know. And I, I, I don't really try to look at it as the end of my one life, as it was a beginning of another one. And, um, and so, you know, looking forward, it's um, has been really important in both how I move to my next level and and, um, and from uh, my uh, great life I had with my wife. So, so Connor, to, to, to put it in fast forward, after your wife died, you continued to work, uh, but you knew something was missing. The first opportunity you got to take a corporate buyout, you did. How did you decide what was next? What was important to you? 
Well, you know, I think my story is a lot about transition and finding a passion. And, um, you know, I started out way back in the days of uh, high tech, and it was a great industry with lots of opportunity. Um, but, you know, by the time I was um, in the aughts here, um, we were more into downsizing and uh, outsourcing, those type of things. And, you know, it just was a different feel to it. Um and so when when the purpose for doing all those 60-hour weeks and traveling all over the world um, kind of left my life, it really sent you kind of thinking about what is important to you and what do you want to do for the next, next second half of your life. So, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time reflecting on that, uh, saying what can I get some passion about. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to take advantage of programs that um, that were being done to, because so many people were being outsourced and let off um, and also had enough personal savings to kind of do that. And so it put me into a whole period of really contemplating what, what do I want to do for the next portion of my days. And what you did, Mark, is you pretty much totally reinvented yourself. You even went back to school and got a degree in gerontology. Why, why did you choose that field? Well, you know, I think this self-reflective point, um, you know, I thought of everything from being a cook on a, on a cruise liner to, you know, just a wide variety of things, tried to put myself in a spot and what would really make me excited about it. And um, it wasn't until I was speaking to some friends about, you know, the um, what is happening with our society and a rapidly aging uh, group and uh, our denial that most of us are in about it actually occurring and the need that's going to be coming along uh, just to handle all these boomers moving into the next phase of their life. And, um, you know, it kind of gave me the excitement I had back in 1978 when I was looking at the high-tech industry and uh, all the possibilities at that point. And so it really um, it just looked like a great place to look for entrepreneurial opportunities and and so I headed down that path. You know that that is fabulous because uh, we often say to people, you know, they really don't fully understand the impact of this age wave which is now beginning to roll over this uh uh, country. So kudos to you for being kind of at the cutting edge of the technology wave and, and now at the cutting edge of the age wave. You just mentioned entrepreneurial uh, opportunities, uh, a great place for, for people to look if they, they want to do their own thing. Boomers want to age in place these days. Uh, does that is that some of what elders in action do? Actually, yeah. Our real goal is to uh, work with people 60 and older to be an active member of our society and involved. You know, we're, um, and that is, you know, keeping people in their homes as long as possible, which is the one resounding thing we hear from um, everyone who's aging right now. Um, and so we work very hard on how to keep people active and involved and engaged. And, um, and you know, there's a lot of different ways in order to reach out to do that. And uh, we have several different programs where that's our goal is to keep um, uh, you know, older adults uh, actively involved in everybody's daily life. Mark, you changed your life uh, only because a tragic experience more or less forced you to. Is, is there something we can learn from you on how we can ask these reflective questions without having to go through a, a catastrophic event? Well, I, I think it really comes down to that core of, um, you know, there's a, an element of fear as you grow older about what am I going to do next and how long can I continue doing what I have. And it's probably getting over that fear of um, of change and, you know, virtually diving in at some point. You know, I, I won't say this is something that everybody can do. You know, if you have two mortgages and three kids still in college, uh, it might not be for you. But if you found that, you know, you meant to do a lot more things back in the 60s and you want to do it while in your 60s, then it's a good time to just stop and take a look about, you know, what did you, what do you want to do with your life or what did you mean to get done? And, um, you know, for me, I had spent so much time kind of um, um, spreading technology around the world that working locally was really something real important to me. So I think it's finding that passion and then looking for the outlet to do it. But that's probably the real key. 
Well, thank you, Mark Noonan, for sharing your observations with us, and, and congratulations on finding a way to create a life of significance for yourself. His name is Mark Noonan, and if you'd like to find out more about him or his organization, folks, uh, you can go to eldersinaction.org. And, Bill, you know, we hear so much from so many people about, uh, you know, the second half of their life and, and those people that are taking a risk, uh, taking a gamble to create something uh, new and better. And when they do that, they almost never regret it. Isn't it interesting listening to Mark? Don't you get the impression that he might have chosen this path at some point in his life anyway, mm. when it was time to come off the road and time to be at home more, when he would look for a purpose that would fulfill him. And, you know, his story sounded very much like yours, at least as far as the entrepreneurial part, seeing the power in the age wave that's coming. And, and that's how this program got created. Uh, a reminder once again that it is never too late. Are you growing bolder? Well, it's a path to a better life, folks, and we hope we've helped motivate you even just a little to realize that it's never too late to get off the couch and get into life. And, of course, you can find Growing Boulder not only here on the radio, but also Growing Boulder TV, GrowingBoulder.com, and now Growing Boulder Magazine. And we really hope you check that out, the new Growing Boulder Magazine, because there is nothing like it anywhere. And if you haven't already, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and we will keep you up to date on all things Growing Boulder. We'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age, it's about attitude. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Joe.